Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of On the Side, a podcast about the passions we pursue whenever we can. And number 38 is Mother's Day edition, uh, a little bit late, but this did happen right around Mother's Day. I sat down with one of my favorite people in the world, Dr. Sharon Samet, aka my mom, to talk about motherhood, her life, the different chapters that she went through, and Idris Elba. Of course, I always love talking with my mom, but this conversation was especially meaningful because I got to ask some questions that I never got to before. Take a listen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Mother's Day special. So usually I start this off and I ask what you do and what you do on the side, but you do a lot of different things and that's evolved over time. So I guess we could go chronological because I feel like the, the two things you did as far back as I can remember were, you know, work and, and being a mom. So I guess we can start with social work and how you got into that. Oh boy, that's going back a long time. <laughs> okay, so um, I um, studied literature, English literature and art history in college. So of course, when I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and I moved to New York and started volunteering in a community center um, for people with schizophrenia. And um, over that period, I just got very interested in mental health and then decided that my next move would be to um, go to graduate school and get an MSW, a, a social work degree, so that I could have a career in mental health. What drove you to that volunteer work? Um, I think at the time I knew somebody who was doing that, and I was kind of, I was, um, you know, a little bit unfocused. And someone said, why don't you try volunteering at this place? They, you can volunteer in the evening, so you could, you know, I was working at some job just to pay my rent and they said you can volunteer in the evenings and they were pretty loose about how many times a week you had to do it they gave you a little bit of training and so I I went for it and what'd you like about it oh it was amazing I mean I had never been exposed to people with serious mental illness Um, and these were primarily underprivileged people with very very severe mental illness chronic mental illness who lived in you know government housing and they would come to this program during the day and at evening in the evening for activities and so it was just it opened up a whole new world to me and I learned about mental illness and I mean there were some amazing people there they were really they were char- cast of characters you know, one was a brilliant pianist, and one was a brilliant chess player, and one had been a, a, a public school teacher, and one, you know, um, it was just, it was really, really interesting to be exposed to that world. And then you, so then you went back to school, uh, got your degree. Right, so then I spent two years and got my MSW in graduate school, and um, got my, after that, got my first job in social work, um, working with ex-offenders, with prisoners who were released um, from prison. Um, 
and my job was to was case management to help them reintegrate into their community with their families, help them with employment. And I spent a year doing that, and then the agency lost its funding, and my next position was in a methadone maintenance program. And that sort of was the first step, that methadone maintenance program, into my lifelong career in substance abuse. Um, oh, and also at the same time that I was working in in the methadone maintenance clinic, I decided to go for additional training in um, psychotherapy. So I was working during the day in the methadone clinic, and at night I was taking classes and seeing patients in a psychotherapy clinic. Um, Because I thought that I wanted to move out of clinic work into private practice and see a little higher functioning patients and have a private practice. So that lasted for a few years. And then in the meantime, I had my first baby, Sasha was born during that period. And then um, after several years doing clinical work and and seeing some patients privately, um, I kind of decided that I wasn't cut out for clinical work. Why was that? Because I was was seeing patients privately. Um, Most of them wanted to come before work in the morning or after work at night. Um, which was not a work schedule that was going to work for me because I had one baby and I knew I was going to have more. and it, So that was problematic. And also it was I felt extremely isolated doing that kind of work. You'd sit in the office, wait for the next patient to walk in. <laughs> um, I just, I mean, you're talking to patients, but it's not like working in an agency or an organization where you're interacting with people, with peers. Um, it's a different kind of experience, and I just felt like it was didn't suit my temperament at all. And to be honest, I don't think that I was that great a therapist. I felt like I I wasn't, I didn't have enough patience. And I just wanted to keep, keep, I just wanted to tell them like, why don't you just do that? Or why don't you just do this? Or why are you doing that? Or why don't you do that? Not not quite how it works. Yeah. I, I was, I just, I feel like I wasn't empathetic enough. I couldn't tolerate their anxiety. I just couldn't. So, yeah. Um, so, I decided to look for a regular nine-to-five job um, doing research because I figured I could work in an organization. It was sort of interesting for me, to the idea of getting involved in substance abuse research. It would be a nine-to-five. I wouldn't have to hustle to get patients. Um, and I, um, I got a job in a very prestigious research institute where I ended up staying for almost 25 years doing substance abuse research. Yeah, that part I remember. That part, yeah, because then <laughs> I, I was had, around for it. Right, then I had, then Elias was born, and then you were born, yeah. and then that was most of my, you know, adult professional life was yeah. there. And then what was it like having three kids and doing that? Well, I was very lucky um, because I was always able to work from three to four days a week. I never worked a complete five-day week, so that was fantastic. Um, And it was, um, while I didn't realize it at the time, um, I was stressed for about 30 years. Um, As most moms are. Yeah, yeah. it's It's just the natural state. You're just stressed because it's like an impossible task to to try to function at a high level at work and then try to function at a high level at home (laughs) with three little kids and an active social life and an active religious life and the stressors that go along with that. And, you know, paying your mortgage for the house and um, a million details and, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was a great life, but it was it was stressful. And you you just made it work. Yeah, I made it work. I mean, I was very happy. I feel like I was very happy. Yeah. Because um, things worked out. Everything was working so well. I mean, I had three amazing kids <laughs> who only caused me, only caused minor problems. <laughs> I mean, that I didn't have any really big problems with any of you. Yeah. I was very fortunate. You were healthy. You, you know, you all did well in school. Um, you were more or less happy most of the time. <laughs> it's a brief period in middle school. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, the normal stressors of pre-adolescence and yeah. adolescence, but they were great years. And then fast forward, you decided to go back to school. So, yes. So um, by the time you were um, already in school, probably starting middle school, starting middle school and you're right. in your 50s. Right, so I was in my late 40s. Sadly, both my parents had passed away, um, which was very sad for me, but also was kind of freeing because my parents, as you know, had moved to our community. And so while they were alive, a lot of my energy went into being with them and taking care of them as they got sick. And um, But then uh, in my late 40s, they, they were gone um, all three of you were kind of like grown and off and doing your own thing. And so I, I had always wanted to get a PhD. And so I, um, I did. I, um, I applied. Easy as that. <laughs> <laughs> I applied to graduate school. I got into Columbia. Yeah, I continued to work part-time doing research. And, um, and then I started taking, I started the PhD program. And in four years, I got my PhD, miraculously, because <laughs> I was not um, the academic type. <laughs> and so, you know, taking statistics was like a traumatic for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, with Daddy's help doing the, t- the statistics tutoring, yeah. um, I did it. So I got my PhD, and I continued to work, do the research, I mean, what was that like, doing school and doing the part-time work and still running the house and doing all of that? You know something? It was, I had been used to being very busy, so, and I just felt so fortunate to be, to have the opportunity to be in a doctoral program and to go to Columbia. I just, I used to walk around the Columbia campus and look up at Lowe Library and think, (laughs) holy cow, I cannot believe (laughs) that at this point in my life, I have this opportunity I just felt really fortunate. So you just I, ran with it? I ran with it. I mean, I was crazy stressed because it was hard for me. The classes were hard, the papers, the demands. But um, And is that also because you hadn't been in school for so long? One, I hadn't been in school for so long. Two, I was just ex- very intimidated by the whole process. I was intimidated by some of the professors. I thought the students were much stronger than me. Um... The whole process really intimidated me, but of course that's part of the reason why that I wanted to do it. Yeah. It was, you know, to show myself or to take that final step like you can do this. <laughs> um, that was very important for me. And I thought professionally it would, you know, I had reached a, a ceiling professionally as far as I could go. And I thought, I, if, you know, if I have the PhD, I'll, I'll be able to go to the next level. And you did it. And I did it. Yeah. I remember, you know, submitting my dissertation. You had to submit it to, at Lowe Library. 
and um, I walked out, and Low Library has these big pillars, and then there are steps leading down to the middle of campus. It's very dramatic. I I remember standing at the pillars, looking down on the steps, and I had like a rocky moment. (laughs) Like I put put my hands up in the air, and I was like, yes! (laughs) Did you actually put your hands up? Yes! Yes, and I called my brother, Jerry, and I was like, yes, I did it. It was, it was really great. It was really, yeah, I felt very gratified that I had done that. And I had, I did it quickly in four years and that I had juggled, you know, my home life and my personal life and my work life. And I, and I was, I was kind of proud of myself. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And so then after that, so then after that, shortly after a year or two after that, I, I was offered a very, very good position in another organization, which I took. Um, and I worked there for about a year and a half. And at this time, I was um, in my late 50s. And through a series of unfortunate events, I lost that position. That position folded. I mean, there was no more position. Yeah. And it was also during the financial crisis. So it was during was... the financial crisis. But there was, uh, it was a whole series of events that uh, that position was, they sort of canceled that whole endeavor that I was working on. And uh, so... I was given three months' notice, and so the first thing that I did was um, I decided to get a teaching job just as an adjunct, because I knew I could get that pretty easily. I had taught, when I was in graduate school, I had taught um, some classes, so I had experience. Um, And so I got, I contacted different graduate programs, MSW programs in the city, and I got it, I was offered an adjunct position at one of them, and which I took, thinking that, if I find a job in the next three months, a full-time job, mm-hmm. I'll finish the semester teaching and then I'll give it up. Yeah. And if I don't find a position in the next three months, I'll at least I'll be working at something while I look for another job. Yeah. That was my thinking. I had some experience teaching and I was teaching this class in, in research methods, so I felt comfortable with the topic. Um, and so I started teaching. And um, yeah, and then, then I found myself unemployed after three months. And at the same time, Daddy and I had decided that we were going to sell our house in the suburbs and we were going to downsize, as they say, and move to Manhattan, which is no small emotional event. I guess I never asked you what, what set that off, besides all of us, you know, being out of the house. Um, so Daddy had wanted to m- move back to the city for a few years. He had been talking about it. And that's a whole other job also. So that was, you mean packing up and... Packing up and, and finding a place. Right, so that was a very while. difficult process. It was like a whole, you know, took over a year just putting the house on the market and selling everything and th- giving things away and figuring out where we're going to live. And emotionally, it was very difficult for me, more for me than for Daddy, um, because he didn't do any of the work. <laughs> and also because he didn't have as much conflict about leaving as, yeah. as I did. I was very conflicted, because on one hand, I loved it, and I was very happy, and it was a beautiful place, and it, I had many beautiful memories associated with the house and the community. Um, and on the other hand, I was very excited about changing and coming to the city and all that and it kind of represented a whole you know like a whole chapter this one chapter of your life because it 
really felt like a whole other chapter once you guys moved to the city. Right. So it was a whole other chapter in terms of moving to the city, a whole change in lifestyle, um, in terms of being an urban dweller, in terms of living in a much smaller space, in terms of finding a new community, a new religious community, which is very important to us, um, and a social life outside of the religious community. And also, here I was now unemployed. Yeah. So my whole identity or my whole sense of myself, I had to sort of reinvent what I what who I was. So how did you feel? Okay, so <laughs> um, yeah, so we moved to the city, um, and I was putting a lot of emotional energy and physical energy into setting up a life for me and Daddy here in the city. Um, and I was teaching, doing the adjunct teaching, and then I thought, okay, like. I, I was actively looking for work, mm-hmm. came close to getting a few jobs and didn't get them. And then after about a year and a half, I said, okay, I'm pulling myself out of that job market. This is not working. By that time, I was almost 60. And I realized that I had been somewhat naive to think, oh, this is going to be easy. Like, someone's just going to hire me. Because um, I didn't, the, I just wasn't realistic about the age factor. Yeah. And you think that that played a big part? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, if I were hiring someone, I would prefer someone 20 years younger. Yeah. If you, if you have the same, if you're both experienced and the same qualifications, qualifications um, yeah, younger people have more energy. I, I, I'm biased too. So, yeah. yeah, I was kind of naive about that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that it's, it's valid. It's definitely invalid and yeah. wrong, but that's life. Yeah. So I pulled myself out of the social work PhD job market. And at the time, Elias had just had recently moved to Crown Heights. And every time we went to visit him, he'd, he'd point out beautiful brownstones in his neighborhood that were selling for crazy, crazy, ridiculous, small sums of money <laughs> for beautiful buildings. So, and he kept saying, look, you can get this brownstone for this and this amount of money. And I, and I kept thinking, wow, you can own that beautiful 100-year-old building for that amount of money. So what happened? In the beginning, I thought, oh, that's very nice. That's nothing to do with me. But then I realized, and Daddy and I talked about it, that we had some money from selling the house. And we were, not, we were renting an apartment. We were not yet ready to buy a condo or a co-op for ourselves. So we had some money, and I thought, you know what? I could probably parlay the money that we got from the house into two properties. I could probably get an investment property in Brooklyn and still have enough money for a down payment on a condo or a co-op for us to live in Manhattan. If I can get mortgages from the banks, I could parlay the one house in Westchester to two properties. So Daddy was extremely encouraging about and it. Just to back up, this just like came to you because I know like your family has a has a history in real estate, right? Or... So my father later in life, when he was sixty, he actually left the business that he was in and went into real estate. He started building houses on spec, they call it, um, and selling houses. So the idea of sort of reinventing yourself at sixty and starting something new. Um, just felt right to me. 
Yeah. And the idea of real estate, I figured, how, how hard could it be? I'm, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to be... real estate, how hard could it be? Well, I'm not going tr- to be, you know, Silverstein. I'm not going to build the World Trade Center. But how hard could it be, like, to buy a house and make some money renting it out? Or how hard could it be to buy a property, renovate it, and sell? You know, it just didn't seem like rocket science to me. Yeah. It just seemed like, okay, there's going to be a learning curve. And you're a responsible, smart person. And It just didn't seem like it would be that hard. It turned out to be much harder than I thought. <laughs> well, it's kind of nice that you went in with it, into it with no fear. Well, I was afraid, but I felt, look, on a small scale, what's the worst that could happen? I can lose some money. That could be pretty bad. Yeah. But really, if I start small, the risks are not so, so great. I wasn't investing every penny I had, yeah. thank God. You had done the math. We, I had done the math. Luckily, I have... Rafi, my son-in-law, who's a financial whiz, so he did the, you know, spreadsheets for me. And Daddy and I looked at the numbers, and so I, so I started going online, contacting brokers through StreetEasy, setting up appointments, and pounding the pavement in Brooklyn, like going to Williamsburg, going to Bushwick, going to Crown Heights, going to all these up-and-coming neighborhoods where... This was 2013, 2013 or 14? Just when it was starting to get really, really hot. Yeah, and I figured, okay, if I can buy something for a reasonable price, maybe I can make money here. Everybody else is making money there in those neighborhoods. Why can't I? Yeah. So it took me about uh, six months to find a property, which I bought and uh, rented out. And I became a manager of a small... (laughs) house a building. which I thought was so cool when that happened it was that was another part of like next next chapter kind of thing where yeah. all of a sudden you're like oh now I now I'm in real estate and right. I, I remember going to see the building for the first time and just think how cool it was like oh you you own this thing and you run this whole big well I think to be thing. honest part of the reason it seemed cool to a lot of people was that it was in Bushwick Bushwick is pretty cool yeah, yeah I mean it was Bushwick and it was like an old building that was renovated and I you know, filled it with all these creative, young creative types. So the whole endeavor seemed cool to people. <laughs> but also that you had the, had the foresight to think, okay, I need to jump on this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's something that I have to say I'm, I'm okay at. Like, I can, I can act pretty quickly and decisively. Yeah. Sometimes too quickly and too decisively. <laughs> but, um, Yeah. That's one of the things you have to be able to do in, in that work. You yeah. have to act quickly and decisively. Um, so, yeah. So, so far, so good. It's doing well. I like it. It's fun. In fact, now I'm talking to somebody else about maybe investing with me and maybe buying another property. I don't know if I told I, you, you that. You didn't tell me that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so, as soon as the semester's over and I grade all my student papers... I'm going to start pounding the pavement again and seeing if I can find something else to invest in. Shane Summit, real estate mogul. So yeah, so I would do the looking and the buying and all that, and uh, somebody um, is looking to maybe invest with me, and so yeah, so I might be working on two buildings. Look at that. Yeah. So so you mentioned so, and you're you're still teaching. So I'm still teaching. I lo- I really yeah. enjoy the teaching. I've told you many stories about my students. Yeah who are older students mostly, 
actually not all, but at least 50% are older students who are working full-time and are going for a degree to further their careers. Mm -hmm. And I have, um, I'd say about 50% are, you know, younger students. Um, about 10, 10 or 15% are Hasidic Jews from the Hasidic community, um, mostly young women who have one or two babies already and want to get an MSW. And the rest are primarily minority students um, who work in um, city agencies um, doing social services or case management. And it's just in a very diverse group of students um, who are very intimidated about learning about research Sounds when they familiar. come in. Sounds familiar. <laughs> right. Uh, and so my goal every semester is to make it palatable for them and to get them kind of psyched about research. And I'm successful, I'd say, maybe 40% of the time. Really? Yeah, which I consider successful. <laughs> Success as in they that get excited about research. That people leave the class feeling that, they've, that they really have their handle on the basics of research design. Yeah. That they feel like they know something about research design and that if they have to read a scholarly journal article, they're, they're not intimidated by it. They can bite into it. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the best feeling. That's amazing. Yeah. That's an amazing feeling. So if 40, maybe I'm underestimating, maybe, no, I'd say about 40%. But <laughs> if 40% of my, the students who leave my classes feel that, that they've learned that, I'm thrilled. Yeah. I'm thrilled. That's great. Because these are people who didn't come to graduate school to be researchers, who will probably never read another research article again in their life. So the 40% that I've impacted, um, it's great. It's fantastic. So, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm managing my building in Brooklyn, and I'm teaching two classes. And you're volunteering. And, um, yes, and so... A few other things I wanted to do, um, given that neither of those other things that I do are full-time, I wanted to also take classes, and I wanted to also do some volunteering, some community, something to give back, um, built into my weekly routine. I didn't want like a one-off thing. So what I do is um, I also take classes. There's two areas that I primarily focus on. One is Jewish texts, which I'm very interested in at this point in my life and learning about. Um, I wasn't when I was younger, but somehow now I'm really, really into it. <laughs> so every semester I take at least, I take one course in Jewish text. And, um, and I also audit classes at Columbia, um, which has been really a joy. Um, I primarily do art history, but I've also done music history and film classes. Um, but I'm very interested in art and so I take art history classes there. And just, I guess that's just out of the, the love of learning and the love of the subject. Well, I really want to learn more about art. I want yeah. to, um, I love it. Um, and I'm very interested in specific periods. So I want to get, get into more, more into specific periods of art and um, just learn more about it. Yeah. And I have the opportunity to do that, which is great. Um, and in terms of volunteer work, I um, so the JCC in Manhattan runs groups for older adults. So I am a facilitator for a group of women who um, are um, age 70 plus. Right now they're between 70 and 93. 
And it's a group of women who have been meeting for 12 years. It's about 13 of them now. And I facilitate their weekly support group, which has been an amazing opportunity. You told me some great stories from that also. (laughs) It's an amazing opportunity. So these are all interesting, colorful, intelligent women. So the ages range. So some are, you know, much more youthful than others. Some are more frail and fragile. Um, But it's a self-selected group. They're all Manhattanites. And they're all women who get to the JCC once a week with their walkers, with their canes, without their walkers. (laughs) Um, So they're independent women. And it's, um, I just love doing it. I love doing it. They're they're very supportive of each other, um, and I've I've learned a lot about aging, the aging process, losing a spouse, losing f- friends, how to deal with adult children. Yeah, um, getting older. Getting older. I just learned so <laughs> much from these women. It's just it's really been fascinating. So you have that, the teaching, the real estate, the the classes, and I, I feel like you always have, and social things, you have you have a book club and groups, and I feel like you're always kind of running to something or doing something. Yeah, so I'm also part of a book club, um, which is all new friends that I made here in the city. Yeah, you, and you rebuilt your social life here. Uh, yes, and I love hosting Shabbat meals, which I do often, Um, and I live in Manhattan, so, you know, you could, every night of the week, you can find something wonderful to do, or hear, or see, and I try to take advantage of it, and I live across the street from Central Park, so I'm running around the reservoir whenever (laughs) I can, and um, yeah. It's a good, it's a good chapter. It's a great chapter. I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah. I'm wondering how it, with all these different things, how it compares to to the other one, where being a mom and, and working, it's a different kind of busy. It's a different kind of busy. Um, you know, I couldn't have done the things that I do now when my kids were younger and when I was working full time. There was I didn't have the time or the energy. I mean, my to- my time and my energy was more focused on home life and family life. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have done all these things. Um, I don't regret not moving here. I mean, that that was perfect for them. Yeah. This is perfect for now. Even though being a daughter and a mom kind of pushed back getting your PhD? I guess I never asked you that. Well, you know, I don't... I, I try not to regret anything because you make decisions in your life based on what's happening in your life at the time. There are always many factors that go into making a decision at any given time. So I think it's kind of doesn't make sense to look back and regret a decision you made at a certain time. So could I say that I regret that I didn't get my PhD sooner? I don't regret it because at that time when I was in my 30s or in my 40s, I was doing what I wanted to do at that time. You know, my life would have turned out very different had I had a PhD when I was 35. But when I was 35, there was no way I was going to go for a PhD. I was much more focused on, on working and having babies and raising the, the kids and 
that, that was my focus. Yeah. That was my priority at the time. PhD was not even, I, I wasn't even thinking about it at the time. Yeah. And it, it happened in the end. It did happen. Yeah. Yeah it, yeah. it didn't happen exactly the way I wanted it because I just assumed I would get a PhD and then I would find this fabulous job and then I would work in t- until I was 100. <laughs> um, it didn't work out that way, but who knew that I would, I would manage a building and that I would take classes and that I would be living on, in Manhattan. And, yeah. You know, who knew? Yeah. So it, it, it worked out okay. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just so fortunate. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that, you know, financially, I'm very grateful to Daddy that yeah. he, he has made this possible for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, that makes a big difference. Yeah, but I think it also, you're a special type of person who needs to be active and needs to be mentally stimulated. Oh, and yeah. You know, you're never. I feel like you're never lazing around. <laughs> like you always. No, I'm not. Have, no. no, and you you always have a new activity and a new. Yeah, new that's just thing. my temperament. Yeah. Everybody's different. Uh, my temperament is I'm I'm, um, I'm physically active yeah. and I I need to be doing. That's that's just my temperament. Yeah, I need to fill my time with interesting things and I'm, in, I'm interested I'm interested in people I'm interested in learning I'm interested in things yeah and I was going to ask how you make it all work but I feel like you you know you schedule and you manage it and yeah I like to have things I like to have a weekly schedule so my, I have my volunteer work is at a given time every Thursday you know my classes are scheduled I take the classes that I audit are scheduled I have a full schedule yeah you know, Thursday, Friday is is to sort of do are my domestic days, <laughs> food shopping and all the other boring stuff. Seeing your granddaughter. Yeah, and also I actually I didn't mention my fantastic granddaughter. <laughs> so now that I'm I'm not working, you know, a full time work week, I can I can hop on the subway and go see my beautiful Rosie in Brooklyn whenever <laughs> I want to. How great is that? Yeah. So. And I want to get into the questionnaire, but I guess the next stage, aside from the real estate, you mentioned Bat Melech. Oh, yes. So I'd like to mention... your opportunity to get it out there. Right. So there's... um, So another thing I've gotten involved in, although in the last few months less so, but now I'm getting involved again, there's an organization in Israel called Bat Melech. Um, So um, it provides shelter for families who are victims of um, domestic violence. If for the women and the children, it's a sh- it, it's um, they have three shelters um, in, in Israel. Israel. But Melech has three shelters, mm-hmm. so and it, it is for women who are who need a kosher shelter, religious women primarily who need a kosher shelter. So there are, in the whole country of Israel, there are fourteen shelters. Two are for Arab women only, and Bat Melech um, has three shelters that are the only kosher shelters um, in Israel. Um, and you can imagine if a woman needs to get out of her home and needs to take her children to a safe place, but she only eats kosher and she needs some, a place that observes Shabbat because she doesn't want to take her children to a place that is, doesn't, it can be very problematic. So this organization, I've, I've done volunteer work for them. That's just um, trying to help them raise some money. Um, another point is that the Israeli government provides some funding for these families, but they do it by a family unit. 
So if a woman has one child or if a woman has eight children, the government gives the same amount of money mm. for that family. So, um, yeah, the organization's called Bat Melech, and you can go online and uh, make a donation. Um, <laughs> how are, or, or I'll email you about our next event. <laughs> how are you involved in that? So I did some parlor meetings um, last year and raised some money, and uh, this just this past week I met with the head of development who happened to be in New York, and we're t- talking about some new ideas that we have um, over the next six months, some ways that we're going to try to raise money here on the Upper West Side for the organization. It's exciting. Yeah. So many new things in the new, in the new chapter. Yeah. Um, so you know about the questionnaire because you have listened to many episodes. Yes, I do know about the questionnaire, <laughs> and I have to say that I thought about it a little bit. Also, okay. I have to add that you and Dad are the only people who have told me that the lessons learned episodes are better than the, right. the interview. Yeah. That you I mean, don't want to hear from other people. You just want to hear from me. No, with all due respect to the people that you've interviewed, they're very interesting, but I really like listening to you. Just, you're a little biased, but it's okay. Um, all right, you've already given this some thought, but number one, your, your go-to pump-up song. And I, I tried to guess this in my head, but... Okay, so I should preface it by saying that I'm from a generation where we, you know, when we used to listen to music, or when I still listen to music, I listen by the album. Yeah, I, I, I try to do that. I don't. So, so a pump up song is less relevant for me than someone from your generation. Yeah, it could be a pump up album. So I was thinking a pump up album. I'm really, I was really thinking in terms of artist, mm. and I would think of who's like who's really like an up upbeat artist. That I, <laughs> Beck. Yeah. Beck. Beck to me, Beck's music is is just, it's not a particular album or song. It's just, I always feel good when I listen to Beck. Yeah. And his new album is pretty good. It always like, yeah. like Brown Eyed Girl. It always makes me happy. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking back and then I thought maybe you were going to say that LCD sound system song. Uh, um, Daft Punk is playing in my house. My yeah, house. yeah. That in one? In my house. In my house. <laughs> Actually, I was riding, driving in the car yesterday, this morning, yeah. and that song, um, Get Lucky, that Daft yeah. Punk, Get Lucky, it's, uh, yeah. Daft Punk. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, it's, it's hard really to good. sit still when that song is on. Yeah. It's, that's a bop, for yeah. sure. But I would say, just as an artist, Beck is, for, yeah. like, if I want to feel up or, like, a pump up. Yeah. Beck. Beck. All right. Then go to Snack. That also keeps you going. I know I'm not a big, as you know. I know you're not. I'm a, not a big snacker. <laughs> Food is not like a reward for me. I wish. But I could but, say the same. <laughs> but when I'm feeling kind of decadent, like I do love Dunkin' Donuts coconut donut. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> you are the only person in the world who like that's the. That's the major decadence. It's like a coconut, a toasted coconut. I know that. Toasted coconut. From growing up. You know that because whenever we used to go shopping at the mall, we used to yeah. stop at Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, and I would get like a Boston cream like filled with custard and chocolate. I'm like, I just want a delicate. <laughs> That's fine. That's to each their own. Um, so kind of similar, you just finished a, a big project or bought a building. What do you do or buy to treat yourself? Alcohol. <laughs> um, alcohol generally, specifically vodka. Yeah. Um, Cold. I, I, I never drink, like, I never reward myself when I'm alone during the day. 
no, you, you're like a one one drink. I'm like a lady. one drink person, <laughs> right? But like after after we bought the building, yeah, you want to have a drink to celebrate. A good cocktail, like after you close on your condo. Yeah, actually, after we closed on our condo, Daddy and I went out to Schnitzel Express to get some Schnitzel sandwiches. I didn't know that. <laughs> you had a Schnitzel sandwich. <laughs> yes. Very classy, but. But I do like to celebrate something special or something good um, with a little alcohol. If you could collaborate with anyone in the world on any sort of project, who would it be? Oh, I didn't think about this question. Is it a living person? It could be dead or alive. Collaborate with anyone. Idris Elba. <laughs> so I could just, you just want to have dinner with him. So I could just look at him. <laughs> what do you even collaborate on? <laughs> You could buy a building with him. <laughs> I don't know. You I didn't, I didn't you, really you, think about you that. Heard that you heard that first if he's listening to it. the podcast. Okay. He definitely is. Um, <laughs> all right. And then finally, if you could give a piece of advice to any sideliners. What about the dinner party question? That's the collaborate question. Oh, that's the collaborate question? Yeah. Oh, then I did think about that. <laughs> Oh, okay. You, you threw me. Well, Idris Elba is at the dinner party. No, no. So Who scratch was? Idris Elba. So I, I thought you were going to ask me if I was giving a dinner party. Who were oh. three people that I would invite? That That is not a question, but you can, oh. you can answer did that I question. Did I make that up? You did, but you can still answer it. Oh, I made Because you up. thought of an answer. So oh, you know where that question is? It's in the book review, the New York Times book review. They always ask somebody that question. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, it's not the same. <laughs> I wish I was at the same level as the New York Times book review. Oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed now. <laughs> okay. So the three people I would like to collaborate with yes. are... Or have dinner with. Or have dinner with. Well, if you're collaborating, you're probably... Are okay. David Grossman, the writer, the Israeli writer, okay. who wrote To the End of the Land, mm-hmm. because he's not only a brilliant writer, but he understands humanity. He just... He understands the human condition, like very few people yeah. I've read or heard. He's just an amazing person. And also, he's, um, he's such a decent human being. He's... So definitely him. So I thought I would I would try to do people who are alive because yeah. if I'm really having a dinner party, party they should be. <laughs> so then I thought about Chrissy Hind. Oh, because Chrissy so Hind is one of my favorite musicians. I love her music, and she's an amazing woman. And she's about like she's my peer. Yeah, and I just find her to be so authentic. Yeah. Like she is who she is and she's always been that and she's always stuck to that. And luck, lucky for her, who she is is amazing. <laughs> um, I just I'm, I just think she would be a great person to collaborate with or to talk to. Mm-hmm. And also it would be so cool to, for her to, to sit down with David Grossman and to see where they could <laughs> oh, connect. Oh, you thought about the... How they could connect. So I figured I, if... Really I would collaborate this. with people who, one who is a writer, one who's a musician, and one who's an artist. So who's the artist? The artist is Georgia O'Keeffe. Oh. Georgia O'Keeffe. I want to be at this dinner party. So I like her art, although I don't love it, but I went to a show at the Brooklyn Museum last year where they had some of her personal things, her clothing, um, things that belonged to her. And it was all, it was, the show was really more about her as a person and I kind of love her more as a person than her art, although her art is beautiful. That's fair. She was so much ahead of her time. She was so progressive. 
she took so many risks and I feel like she really she really understood beauty she really got what beauty is about and so to me that's so amazing yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the three those are the three and and the fact that they're such different people yeah I think is an advantage because they would each have to really look into the other person to see where they could connect wow which would be so interesting I right? think you've thought harder about this question than any anyone else who has been on you and I'm only letting you change it because you're my mom okay. so you get special special privilege okay so now this is the last question a piece of advice to sideliners who have an ambition or a project that they have yet to pursue there's never going to be a right time it's just never going to be a perfect time and so that you need to, if there's something you want to do and if you can tell yourself five years from now am I going to look back on doing that and say I regret it if you're going to say, no, I'm never going to regret doing this, then just do it. I learned that from my brother, Jerry, who one summer when his daughter, Hannah, was very young, he told me he's not going to be teaching during the summer. And I said, really? Why, why aren't you teaching this summer? He said, because I wanted to spend it with Hannah. He said, you know, I'm never going to look back on that summer and say, damn, I should have taught. I shouldn't have spent it with, <laughs> with Hannah. <laughs> so I think that was a lesson for me, like, if there's something you want to do um, and it's important for you, you got to jump on it. I love that. That's a good place to end it. Happy Mother's Day. Thank, Thank you. you. This was really fun. Thank you. <laughs> You're my sweetheart. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> How great was that? And definitely the most thoughtful OTS questionnaire answers in the history of the podcast. Thanks again to my mom for entertaining me, coming on the podcast, having a chat. Definitely be sure to give your mom or maternal figure a big hug and a nice gift for Mother's Day. If you want to give us a gift, definitely check us out on social. Give us some likes at OTS on Instagram and the On The Side Facebook page. Stay tuned next week for an all new Lessons Learned. And as always, keep hustling.